0: Welcome to the Mind is Infinite podcast, a platform for discussion on the things not discussed. My name is Jay Rahim and in this episode I wanted to not only introduce myself but also give a foundation on what this podcast entails and what exactly my vision was for this podcast. I am a high school student living in a very gentrified part of Durham, North Carolina and although I've had opportunities to speak on such issues as race, sexuality, classism, It's never been completely honest or raw, because our white counterparts are usually in the audience or even a part of the discussion. But I can assure you, there are no white people in this room right now. So sit back, grab a warm drink, maybe a notebook if you want to write down the iconic things that are said, and enjoy. Hopefully as the podcast progresses, I would like all of you who are listening to help me form this foundation and vision into something bigger than what I already had in mind. I hope you enjoyed my very soothing introduction. (laughs) My voice is very monotone, and there really is nothing I can do about it but make it say very interesting and thought-provoking things, like microaggressions. And specifically in the classroom, there are many classroom elements that we've lived with our entire lives, and when I mean our, I mean those of us in the public school system. But we never really think about how those different classroom elements, like where we sit, who usually gets picked on to answer questions, who usually gets punished or called out for their behavior, and even to the bottom of what is actually taught and how it's taught and who it's taught for can impact the way students of color and specifically black girls view themselves and how they fit into a space like that. I've always been considered the person to raise my hand first, all through elementary school and middle school. Every question that was asked would follow with this, this bitter silence as they waited for me to either shout the answer or raise my hand very viciously. And that probably was the same for some of you all, but for me, that changed pretty quickly coming into high school. Going into high school is very scary. Not only are you learning about yourself, but you're putting yourself in a whole new environment and community with some that look like you and others who don't. Unfortunately, though, our education system, even to this day, doesn't accommodate for that new community, that that new diverse image. There are so many different ways microaggressions can be implemented in our everyday lives, but I just want to focus on the classroom, which as a student is something that I'm very comfortable with. One thing that has always stood out for me when I first started high school three years ago is how surprised people, white people really, and maybe actually our own brothers and sisters can be when they hear how, I guess, proper I talk, just my diction in general, really. They still call it talking like a white person, which is a microaggression in itself. I mean, how does one really talk white? And that's where it really started for me. I mean, it, began to be a lot more difficult to put myself into situations because I felt as if i talked too much or spoke out of turn, I would be given a spotlight I really didn't want. We can even go beyond the talking white thing, you know, even black girls who may talk a little louder or just acting as themselves are considered ghetto, ratchet, hood. And why is that? Why do we as black people and people of color in general automatically feel judged by our counterparts or even our own community just because of the way that we speak? This all comes from the way the education system was built, this white culture initiative, to have the white heterosexual man be the ideal way of speech. You sit properly and raise your hand to be called on, do not speak out of turn, and don't challenge the authority in front of you. But that's not how this generation has operated. We've completely evolved away from that perspective, because even though it never really was accurate, it's definitely not accurate right now. There's so much that can be done to change how much white culture controls our diverse environment, especially in the classroom, because it is so important to have students of color feel as welcome as possible in a safe space like school, when the world outside of those four walls doesn't even care if we rotted on the sidewalk. So I've written down some tips for teachers and students to understand really how to identify microaggressions and how to grow from the idea of white culture dominating the classroom. Number one, introducing and addressing white culture. Now, I've said the term white culture a few times before, but maybe not a lot of you really understand what that is or how it works. And to be honest, it's really hard to put into words. After doing some research, I've sculpted my own definition that I think will make the most sense for those being first introduced to this concept. White culture is this established normalcy in hopes of the most privileged being the most comfortable. According to the consolidated characteristics of white culture, there are six aspects of white culture. Perfectionism, defensiveness, progressiveness, paternalism, individualism, and objectivity. Now all of these are very significant aspects of white culture, and each and every one of them somehow influences the way the classroom setting is operated. But I'm going to focus more on defensiveness and paternalism, because I think they hold the most weight to what we're talking about here. With defensiveness in white culture, there will be this idea of power protection for those who are given authority, and any person who in some way degrades or challenges that authority is considered disrespectful or threatening to the one who is quote unquote in power. I'm going to use a very general example for better understanding. A lot of the time, white people tend to deny the ideas of racism out of defensiveness, just because they feel as if, if they themselves are not vocally racist, racism still does not impact the way they live their daily lives. Specifically in the classroom, we do not address the idea of privilege enough, so when a black student or a teacher who may not even be black addresses this privilege in many aspects, either through standardized testing, access to internet, access to tutoring, access to beneficial extracurriculars, access to transportation, some white students feel as if it's an attack on them personally, just because that privilege personally impacts them. Being racist doesn't mean you only explicitly use slurs or violate people of color through macroaggressions like physical contact, although that is a big part of racism. There is a beltline of systematic racism that has literally been built from the beginning to benefit white people and completely disadvantage those of color. And white people need to understand that that is simply the foundation of their privilege. Now paternalism is a little bit easier to explain. Simply put, it's the idea that those of power have the right to make decisions over those without any power, almost as if they're doing them a favor. Paternalism can easily be inputted into the teacher-student relationship, especially if the student is of color. Because a teacher has an established authority over the student, making decisions on behalf of them can be considered the best way. But why exactly is that? The amount of work a student gets should not only be up to the teacher, as we don't know what the student's overall responsibilities are outside of the classroom, either educational or not. The way the education system has been idled and operated should not only be up to those given power. Like I've said before, the way we learn and the way things should be taught changes every day, and a system built centuries ago should not still be the backbone of the education given to the students of this generation. Students, especially in the Black and Latinx communities, should have the right to make decisions regarding the information they receive for 180 days per year for 12 years. And although every classroom setting is very different, the overall teacher-student relationship should be analyzed and critiqued a lot more critically, with the aspects of paternalism and decision-making being the main point of what needs to be changed. Now along with everything that I just explained, I want you all to take away something very important for how you can really introduce and address white culture. Take comfort in the discomfort. This is very much a lot more easy said than done, but defensiveness comes from not addressing your power and privilege at all, only because it makes you uncomfortable. That in itself is an issue that is taken too lightly in America, and especially in the education system. So I encourage teachers and students alike to understand the relation of defensiveness and fear, whether it be the fear of losing power in the classroom or the overall fear of discomfort relating to discussion or just authority. Identifying this defensiveness in yourself towards privilege and power over people of color is a huge step to take in hopes of eliminating it as a whole. In regards to eliminating paternalism in white culture, you have to include all perspectives in your own perspective. Almost like putting yourself in other people's shoes, but that's not possible, nor is it recommended. The only way for decisions to positively impact everyone who is included is to actually include everyone impacted in that decision. Ask your students how much homework they feel is appropriate, considering their are other classes or other responsibilities. Taking into account that not all home situations or even school situations are the same. When making a syllabus for your class, have the students include what they feel as if is the best way to make the classroom a secure and safe space, with an open discussion about everything we've discussed in this podcast and steps to take to make sure all students understand privilege and what that means for them individually and as a student in a diverse classroom. Number two, accountability is key. Holding yourself accountable to understand, prevent, and discuss microaggressions in the classroom is not a simple task. Only because we've made it so ingrained in our language to say things like, you're pretty smart for a black girl, or like I said before, you don't sound black, along with many others. But although it's not simple, it can still be done with practice. Understanding how microaggressions work in different settings is a big step to eliminating them. So once again, let's focus on the classroom. I had some help from an article by the University of Washington called Addressing Microaggressions in the Classroom to help explain three different kinds of microaggressions, along with their impacts and how to handle them with appropriate intent. The denial of racial reality is a simple microaggression that can easily be implemented in the classroom, and I think for me, I see it more in the topic of slavery and historical discrimination, I've only seen this happen a few times during history class, but for some very odd reason, some white students feel as if stating the fact that slavery happened a long time ago makes what we face now not a big deal in a sense. Which I can assure is very wrong in many aspects, and this in itself is a microaggression, denying a student's experience about race only because it doesn't apply to you. Slavery in itself is a barrier all students of color have to face, because our ancestors never had a free life until after 1964, about 56 years ago. Which means us as black people have only been given true freedom for 56 years, whereas white people have been benefiting and progressing economically since the beginning of America, and even now we are not truly free. The main microaggression I've been giving examples for is simply making judgments about belonging. Basically having a stereotype about a single race or group, and assuming if that person doesn't fit that vision or stereotype, they just simply aren't an example of that race or group. I'm gonna say personally, I've dealt with this microaggression my whole life, and the common term that's used for people that are different from what is perceived as common black culture is Oreo. It hurts to hear and see how easy people, even in our community, can hold such an invisible standard to the way races should act. It took me a long time to realize how the way people perceived me was the way I perceived myself. And it's hard to come out of that image that you should act a certain way to belong. Say things you don't mean or hold back just because of a crowd that doesn't accept you for you. Black is versatile. Black has layers. It has levels. It has everything. Saying things to your peers like, you talk white, or you're too white for me, degrades their value as a true black person, and the last thing we need is our own people degrading each other. Ascription of intelligence is having a preconceived judgment of a person of color, specifically because of the way they look or the way that they speak. Sometimes teachers will act surprised or degrade a student of color's knowledge only because they assume that students of color don't have the opportunity to be exposed to greater knowledge than what is given to them in school which sometimes can be true, but hardly the case. And if I'm going to be honest, it's not surprising that many teachers don't expect high-achieving students of color, because we don't often see that type of representation in the media or even in history. But the focus of a Eurocentric curriculum should not be an excuse to automatically assume that students of color will not try to learn or work harder to achieve good grades. I have always been someone to work to achieve the grades I feel represents me personally, However, many of my peers have dealt with teachers who will give them a side-eye glance, or even be taken aback when they go out of their way to achieve in school. In the public school system, we need to really understand that students of color are never given the same amount of opportunities. And that's because the system was made to do exactly that. To have white students have high graduation and testing rates, and for students of color to be completely stripped of their rights to valuable education. Now there are some ways students and teachers can come together to recognize this unresolved issue that lingers in the classroom. Having open discussions about understanding intent and impact, and how good intentions can come out as harmful, will open a sense of trust and understanding between your peers and also the teacher and student relationship. When a specific microaggression has already taken place, no matter if you were a student or a teacher, you have the power and responsibility to intervene and slow down or stop the conversation. Have the person who stated the microaggression elaborate on their statement, then have the other person who was affected or even offended by their statement explain why they felt a certain way when it was said. You now have to understand both sides and emotions that are visible and invisible. Support the person who was targeted while acknowledging the impact, and explain why the said statement was problematic or out of place. We all have a role to hold people accountable. And in this day and age, we can take things so lightly or hold things in because we've been told that we don't have the power to speak out on things that truly offend us or the people around us. You were fighting for the right to feel safe and welcome in a public environment like school. You were fighting for your right as a teacher who wants to help their students better understand systematic racism and how it impacts all of them in one way or another. I am telling you now, you have that power. Because your power is in your right. And if you are fighting for your rights, you're fighting for that power. Thank you so much for listening to the Mind is Infinite podcast. Although this is technically a quarantine project, I've always been passionate about topics like this because, I mean, topics like this are not normalized enough in a time when they should be the most important. I really hoped you enjoyed listening and learning and understanding everything, and I hoped it moved you so much that you'll want to share it to as many teachers, peers, or family members that you can. I want to give a huge thanks to my creative writing teacher, Ms. Caitlin Donovan, who helped me shape this first episode and the information I wanted to speak on. Also Mr. Arvetra Jones, along with Elijah Leek, for making the music you are hearing. You can find Arvetra at arvetra underscore d. And the beautiful art you were looking at for this podcast was made by a friend of mine named Chris, who you can find on Instagram at wander.media. I finally want to thank all of you again, along with my family that I'm stuck in the house with, for encouraging me to go through with this. This is once again Jay Rahim, and I will see you all next time.